Well, I trust your Bibles are open to Matthew 23. It's where we were last week. We looked at the first 12 verses of this chapter, and I was reminded, even as Brad said, that these are the words of Jesus. We often can think of Jesus as, you know, the the kind and tender and compassionate one, and certainly was. I mean, there's nobody who sinners love to come to than Jesus because he was compassionate. And children love to sit in his lap because of his kind words, and yet from his mouth come some of the most harsh and strong and biting and, I use the word rightly, condemning words to those who have resisted him. In chapter verses 1 through 12 last week, we really saw how Jesus was teaching the multitude how to respond to hypocritical leaders. On the one hand, they're to be respected as leaders, right? All they tell you, do and observe. But on the other hand, they're to be entirely ignored as to their example, which we saw last week. And here in verse 13, where we pick it up today, is... Um, going to be kind of a changing point. At this point, Jesus is going to just put outright condemnations against these scribes and Pharisees. Again and again, Jesus is going to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says again and again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In fact, let's all say that together. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Almost this mantra that Jesus says. It comes again and again and again. Time after time, he's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Brad Kolak was in our house last night. We were practicing our music for our worship this morning. And he said, Steve, what's the Greek word for whoa? Here it is. Ooh, Can you just feel the pain in that? Like, ooh, It's what it is. It's a painful, strong condemnations coming upon these scribes and Pharisees. In fact, several other passages in the Bible have similar statements where it says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. One is in Isaiah chapter 5. Six woes upon the people of Israel. Woe to those who add house to house, right? Covetously gathering everything together. Woe to, to those who early in the morning... Right, They rise that they may pursue strong drink. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Or in Habakkuk chapter 2, five woes. Woe to him who increases what is not his. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! I mean, these are not good things. These are terrible words of condemnation. In fact, in Revelation chapter 18, when Babylon is about to be destroyed, John writes, as it's said in heaven, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Woe, woe, the great city. Woe, woe, the great city. And in every instance, this repetition of the word woe here shows that it's not good. It's a declaration of God's coming judgment. 
And in Matthew 23, Jesus is declaring the condemnation that's coming upon these scribes and Pharisees. The clear application of these words really are simple. If you want to avoid condemnation, you need to do two things. Really, you need to steer clear of these scribes and Pharisees. And you need to avoid their example. Don't be like them and stay away from them. Stay away from leaders like they are. And stay away from their example that they set. This morning we're really going to look at the first three verses. The first three woes. Right, so they focus really on the evils of the false leaders. And I'm going to say, don't be like them and don't follow them if they are like this. Here it is, our first woe this morning. How to avoid condemnation? Here it is, number one, get the gospel right. Get the gospel right. In verse 13, Jesus said this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because... You shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, and you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. These scribes and Pharisees were very busy about their religion. They were very good at attending Sabbath services. They were very good at saying their prayers, very good at tithing their income. And yet all of their religious activity in the end, you know what it did? It brought them nowhere. They didn't get into the kingdom of heaven. Religious though they were, it didn't get them where they wanted to go. And perhaps what's worse, it prohibited others from getting into the kingdom as well, right? That's what Jesus says. Look at the words. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Several years ago, my family was invited to go to a harvest celebration with uh, an international student group from Rockford College that we had some connection with that we we knew about. And uh, Vaughn received the invitation by email and told us of the fun-filled evening that was planned. She said, hey, do you guys want to do this? It says that there's going to be a potluck meal, there's going to be an apple pie contest, there's going to be a square dance caller, and there's going to be like a pinata game for the kids. Do you want to come? you want to go? What do you think our kids said? <laughs> yeah, we want to go. This would be really fun. They were excited about attending the party. And Yvonne and I were interested as well. We thought it would be a good time. But plus, we had a connection with an international student on Rockford College campus. We're reaching out to him, and we get to spend some time with him, maybe meet some of his friends, meet some other of the community, use this in outreach. And so we put it on our calendar, Saturday, October 26, 2001. It's going to be at a, a local church in town. And so as that Saturday came, our, bi- our family was busy about the preparations for that day. Yvonne was cooking some things for the party, you know, make, making a, a, a dish to share and making an apple pie probably. I, I'm not exactly sure. And, and I put great, forth great effort to finish my sermon early so that, you know, I could go out on Saturday night and uh, we we're going to go. And the kids especially were excited about going. They'd attended a square dance before and they knew the fun that it's going to be in store for them. In fact, I've got... One child here who was very, very excited about going. So we got in our car that Saturday evening and drove over to the church where the party's going to be had. And we drove into the parking lot. We were thinking, you know, something's not quite right here because none of the lights were on. And it was really pretty dark. And, you know, we discovered that there weren't many. Were there any cars there? I don't even know if there are any cars there. And we 
quickly determined that something was dreadfully wrong. We're pretty confused, right? We turned around, went home. And at that moment, we turned around and went out of the church parking lot. Many tears flowed from the eyes of our kids as they were looking forward to this party and it something was wrong. And so we said, well, we'll go back home and we'll double check that email. And then Yvonne looked at her email and she discovered that it was Friday, October 25th and not Saturday, October 26th that the party was. We missed the party. And it was disappointing for all of us. But you know what? Here's the point of the story. We didn't trust Yvonne with the details of the party. And though we wanted to attend the party, we were eager to attend the party, we did all that we could, all we were asked to do to attend the party, we were misled by a guide who was mistaken. Right? In all... In all <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll confess some sin in this message pretty soon, so you'll see that. But um, that's exactly what took place with the scribes and Pharisees. They said, hey, this way to the kingdom of heaven, come and follow us. And many there were who followed in their deception, like the rats who followed the Pied Piper. There were many in Israel who were enchanted by the tune that these scribes and Pharisees played on their pipes, only to find themselves drowned in the end. But unlike the Pied Piper, I think that these scribes and Pharisees didn't realize their end was destruction. There's some debate about that, but I think that they were dead earnest in getting the kingdom. I think that they were like Avon. I mean, convinced the party was going to be Saturday. I mean, I can imagine them standing before the Lord that day saying, Lord, let us in. Look at all the things we've done. We've come to come in. And look, we've brought all these people along to get in. And I can imagine them being denied entrance. Can you? I can imagine them, when they get denied entrance, arguing with God and saying, but God, we perform miracles We prophesied in the name of Jesus. We cast out demons. And I can imagine Jesus saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know why I can imagine that? Because that's in the Bible. You can read about it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus told us this very same thing would take place. Many people thinking they're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, professing all these wonderful things they did in the name of Jesus, only to be denied. And I don't care how earnest you are, I don't care how sincere you are, if you're on the wrong path, you're headed to destruction. They believed their path was the right way, but it was the wrong way. And there are two roads in this life. One leads to eternal life and the other leads to eternal death. And it's important that you're on the right path. And the right path is the way of the gospel. And here's my point. That's why you need to get the gospel right. It's not that the gospel's secretive. It's not that it's difficult. It's not for, only for those who are clever. It's really quite plain and clear. The only way... To get to God is by forsaking yourself and trusting another. You'll never get into the kingdom of heaven on your own efforts. You'll never get there on your own works. You need help. You need Jesus. You need what Jesus has. He has something that allows you to get into the kingdom of heaven. To get into a ball game or performance, what do you need? You need a ticket. And you don't get into heaven without the ticket of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
See, because Jesus committed no crime. He'd done nothing wrong. He'd never sinned. And there was no reason at all why he should be put to death, humanly speaking. But that's the point. He was a sinless sacrifice. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross. And by dying, he obtained for us what we could never obtain for ourselves. The gospel can be summarized with one word, substitution. When Jesus died, he died in the place of sinners. He died instead of sinners. His death was for sinners. Consider the following verses in the Bible. And listen to the words of substitution that come here. Jesus died for us, okay? 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins. Christ dying in the place of sins. Christ dying for sins. The just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered for you, right? He did it for you in your, your behalf. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ died for our sins. He died in the place of, on behalf of our sins. His death was for our sins. Christ gave himself for the church. It was him giving himself for his church, right? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life for us. That's what the gospel's about. It's substitution. That's the good news. Jesus died for me. It's because of his work that I enter heaven. Now, for some of you, this might be a little bit old hat. But for the Brandon household, this is a new thing in our house. How many of you, how many of you had these things for a long time? All of you who commute have these things for a long time. The Brandon household, we haven't commuted very much. You know, we, we'll flip out the coins at the toll booths. But when they jack the price and they double the price of the tolls, we're, we're pretty good in math, okay? We can figure out that one of these things is going to pay for itself pretty quickly. And so we ordered one just as the new year was expiring, just when the tolls got up. And I used it this week for the first time, and it really was a, a wonderful thing. I'm driving through the toll plaza. I put this thing right up on my windshield, and the light turns blue or green, and I go through. No coins coming out of my pocket into that nasty basket. <laughs> it's the eye pass that gets me through. You know what? This is a little bit like what heaven is like. You need to have the eye pass to get in, to get past. Otherwise, that bar is going to be down, and you're going to sit there until you pay. And do you know what you need to pay to get past that bar into heaven? You pay your life. You pay everything. And in fact, you know what? You can't pay it. You need to have someone give you an I-pass, right? Who has paid the balance. And it's nothing for me. That's the gospel. How important it is for you to get it right. It's important for you to know it, to understand it, to believe it. And, you know, I would go further than this, okay? It's not just even for you. It's important that you know that those who you are following spiritually know it and understand it and believe it. The sad reality in Jesus' day is that you had many people following scribes and Pharisees, following people who didn't believe the gospel. And the New Testament writers were very aware of the dangers of false teachers, in fact, many of the New Testament books were written precisely because of a false teaching that was taking place. Second Corinthians, false teaching taking place. Galatians, 
It was the whole Judaistic heresy. That's why he wrote Colossians. The people in Colossae were being swayed by false teachings. In fact, in 2 Peter and Jude, explicit characteristics described of false teaching. 2 Timothy contains a lot of instructions on how to combat the false teachers. People in these books, furthermore, were exhorted to stop following those who are propagating false gospels. In Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Right? Know the gospel, and if they're going by the way of philosophy and empty deception, don't be carried away by them, because you know the gospel, and you won't be sucked into that. And in fact, when people were beginning to get sucked into it, like those in Galatia, right, believing that they were justified by faith, they're trying to be sanctified by the works of the flesh. And Paul said, you, what do you call them? You foolish Galatians. You started in the Spirit. Are you going to be perfected in the flesh? You're losing the gospel. You're drifting from it. You're missing it. You've got to know the gospel. You've got to know that those who you're following know the gospel. In fact, things were so bad in 2 Corinthians, with the false apostles and the deceitful workers, that Paul encouraged the Corinthians to test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. I mean, these super apostles have come in and they've begun to influence you wrongly. Are you in the faith? That's what he said. Are you being swayed? But none of the warnings come as strong as the warnings of Hebrews. In Hebrews, God warns of the condemnation that will come to those who follow after false teachers and false gospels. Listen, church family, this isn't child's play. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal damnation. If you don't get the gospel right. So if you want to avoid condemnation, there it is, verse 13, get the gospel right. If you want to avoid condemnation, here it is, next next point. Serve others and not yourself. Right, look at verse 14. Right, you see it there? Why are you laughing? You've got a problem, right? It's not there in some of the texts, right? You might be looking for verse 14, but not, not, might not find it, right? You ever been on an elevator and looked for, for floor 13? That goes from 12 to 14, got skips by. Some Bibles do this. They skip right past verse 14. Now, I know if you have the... English Standard Version, it skips that. The New International Version skips it. If you look carefully in your footnote, you should be able to find it. It should say something like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. Even while making a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Now, I don't want to get technical with you, but this is one of those few instances in the Bible where there's textual discrepancies in the ancient manuscripts. There are thousands, in fact, I think about 5,000 existing manuscripts of the New Testament. Some are just little little scraps, little sections. Some are complete manuscripts. But all of them were copied by hand. And if you've ever tried to copy a phone number down, or if you've ever tried to copy an address down, you know how easy it is to you know, misplace something, miswrite a word, or, or mis, you know, interpret some kind of word, or letters, or skip over entire verses. And, and here in the process here, letters sometimes are skipped, missed. Sometimes um, words are skipped over, especially as they reach the end of a line sometimes. That's a real tricky time for 
scribe. Sometimes entire verses are skipped. Maybe they're inserted right here in verse 14. Right? And some manuscripts include verse 14. Some manuscripts don't. Some manuscripts flip verse 13 and 14. Some of the, most of the older manuscripts don't have it. But the majority of manuscripts do have it, but they're younger documents. And so we can get into all this stuff, but I, I simply say, verse 14 is biblical and Jesus said it. Okay? And I say that because in Mark chapter 12, verse 40, and in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, these words are recorded exactly. We don't know whether Jesus said them here on this occasion or not. And rather than going out and saying, I, Jesus did say them or Jesus didn't say them, and, you know, I might be wrong, and I don't want to mislead you. I'm just going to say, you know, for completeness sake, we're going to cover it. And maybe we're going to take a diversion here to Mark chapter 12, and then we'll come back to Matthew chapter 23. But we're going to look at verse 14 because it has some things to teach us about condemnation. These are religious leaders who are in it for themselves. And I say, don't be in it for yourself, be in it for others. These scribes and Pharisees were condemned for two activities. Here it is. First, they were devouring widows' houses. Second, they were making a show of their long, showy prayers. He says, therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Pretty heavy condemnation coming for these activities. Listen, and look, it was precisely because they were doing these things that the condemnation came. It's because they devoured houses of widows. It's because they prayed long, pretentious, showy prayers that they were condemned. And I believe that these are religious activities that went astray. And I think that these religious activities went astray because they were done for their own benefit rather than being done for the benefit of others. Let's think here about devouring widows' houses. I think that Jesus here is simply talking about taking advantage of the poor. The widow especially in the time of Jesus, with no governmental welfare, was totally helpless. Without a husband, in times without a family, totally at the mercy of the religious community. And you know what the scribes and Pharisees did to these these women who were down? They kicked them. That's what they did. It says they devoured houses. Like a a ravaging dog on a a piece of pork. It's the picture here. Devouring them, eating them. That's what they did. We don't know how, but I can surmise that these Pharisees were big into the letter of the law, big into tithing. And what what does a widow have but her house? Well, you need to give a tenth of your house to the work of the Lord every year. And pretty soon their house is gone. They didn't have it. Could have been something as simple as that. But rather than helping the poor, they took advantage of them. They used their religion to gain an advantage for themselves. And oh, how the Christian world is susceptible to this today. I remember when I was working in a secular workplace, right, just as this church was being planted. Those of you remember in the early days of the church, I was working full-time at the hospital and coming up here and leading a Bible study before Kishwaukee Bible Church sent me up here and provided my means to be up here. I had this man who I worked with, and he chided me being a preacher boy. And, and he used to say, Steve, what do you do? Do you stand in front of people and say, oh, give me money and the Lord will bless you? And I told him, I said, no, that's not how it is. I mean, at our church, we don't even pass an offering plate. We have a box in the back if you want to contribute, is what I said. 
And I told this several times to him. It just didn't get through. Where did he get this idea that I would stand up and say, Oh, give me money and the Lord will bless you. He got it from watching Christian workers on television. That's where he got it. There are many hucksters out there today who want nothing more than your money. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, says that one of the characteristics of false teachers is that they're greedy. And you need to steer clear of religious leaders who are greedy. And see, it's not only on television. I think there's also a way that, that pastors in the ministry can use the ministry for their own advantage. They can climb the ecclesiastical ladder, start as a youth minister, become an associate pastor, then become a senior pastor, and then get a bigger church and a bigger church, and then, and then become you know, a bishop over a, a denomination, over a series, and then maybe become a seminary professor, and then have a nice retirement. Viewing the church for their own means as, as climbing the ladder to get what it is that they want to get. That's out there a lot. When the truth fully known, perhaps there are many pastors who really in it for themselves see ministry as a job, as an opportunity for self-gain rather than being in it for the people and for others. Another approach, I think there are plenty of pastors who push people financially right, to build the building. Let's build this church building. Let's build up this enterprise. Let's have this school. Let's have all... And where the truth be known, perhaps many of these pastors are in it for their own good and for their own name really promoting themselves. Perhaps the one who illustrates this best is John Tetzel. You remember him in the 1500s? He went around Europe promising release of relatives from purgatory. If only the family members contribute to St. Peter's Basilica. Come give us money. You know, and, and he was going around to just the impoverished people. Right? Those who could least afford it, giving from their poverty that the religious leaders in Rome could live in luxury. And it was a sham. And when you see such religious leaders, flee from them. They're on the same path the Pharisees are on. It's a path, as I said, verse 14, of greater condemnation. It comes in all shapes and styles in varying degrees. But if it's there, you need to avoid it. Regarding the showy prayers that these scribes and Pharisees offered, I think that Jesus was talking about the same thing. Using religion to get an own personal advantage, right? Praying loud and flowery prayers before others might not earn you much money, but it will make you seem spiritual in the eyes of others. Preaching a nice-sounding sermon might not make you the wealthiest man in the world, but it might make others think highly of you, right? In it for myself. And this is what Jesus is getting at with these words, right? Using religion to your own benefit. Using religion in such a way that it will help you. And I think that's a special danger in the ministry. And people are paid to minister to others. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul anticipated the time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths, right? We can often think about this verse in reference to the congregation. Oh, there's that congregation. They don't want to endure sound doctrine anymore, so, right? so they're off drifting. But think about it. The congregation goes off drifts and says, oh, we don't want anything of that. Pre- we want to have a preacher according to our desires. And you know what? Wherever there is a ministerial opportunity, there's always a ministerial volunteer who will gladly step into that place and become a professional storyteller, become a professional ear tickler just to tell them. It takes place. I remember a man... Growing up, was a pastor of a church, leading a congregation spiritually. He was a nice guy and all, but his marriage turned sour. 
And um, you know, I don't know all the details of it, certainly, but it ended in divorce. And uh, according to his denomination, he was not permitted to be a pastor in that denomination anymore. So you know what he did, right? What did he do? You switch denominations, of course, right? And you go to another denomination where he can ply his trade and be his pastor, be a pastor. There's danger, people in it for themselves. And I don't think the danger is only in the ministry. There are subtle ways it can affect the average churchgoer as well. There are plenty of people who simply attend church because of the reputation it gives them around the city, particularly maybe um, city leaders or politicians or perhaps you know lawyers or high-profile people because the church can be a benefit to them and that, where the truth be known, might be a major reason they go to church. Plenty of people attend church because it keeps their family happy. If I go to church, mom and dad are going to be off my case. Let me just go. Using religion to help them in some sense. Plenty of people who attend church only when it's convenient. Well, I'll attend church or I'll attend to spiritual things when they're convenient for me. Right? That's being in it selfishly. I remember in high school. Okay, this is hopefully get back. I didn't mean to. I remember in high school thinking about how good I was. Right? As a popular guy. I was a good athlete, a good student, and I I was a Christian as well. And I was this good boy that walked. And I remember distinctly one time in high school thinking about how good it was for me that I was a Christian because others would look high upon this nice moral guy. I was using religion to my own advantage and how subtle it can be. There's great danger in this It's empty. Using religion to your own advantage is empty. Jesus said that those who practice their righteousness before men to be noticed by them have already received their full reward. Already received. In in the vision and view of other people, they've received the reward in full. You can read that again and again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 talks about that. They have no reward from God. In fact, what Jesus says here in verse 14 is they'll be condemned for it. You want to avoid condemnation? Get the gospel right. Serve others and not yourself. Thirdly, don't follow the false leaders. Verse 15, Jesus here focuses his attention upon the disciples these scribes and Pharisees are producing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. The picture Jesus gives here is of the great effort that these Pharisees went through to produce a disciple. They went out land and sea, right? going out and laboring and toiling and producing a disciple. And the disciple they produced wasn't good at all. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't criticize these Pharisees for their zeal. He criticized them for the result of their labors. Right? See, because their converts weren't converted to biblical Judaism. Their converts were converted to Phariseeism. Their converts were like themselves. And isn't that what you expect? Right? Like produces like. Corn produces corn. Flowers produce flowers. Rabbits produce what? Rabbits. Dogs produce what? And Pharisees produce Pharisees. And this woe that Jesus pronounces really is a, a culmination 
of everything that they were. They were false teachers who believed a false gospel. They misunderstood the law, focused all their attention upon the externals of the rabbis, the regulations. They put all of their efforts into creating converts just like themselves. And I'm sure that these converts were pretty good at imitating and mimicking the Pharisees. In fact, I think they did their job very, very well. I think that these converts took what they were taught and pursued things twice as much, went twice as far, twice as legalistic, put forth twice the efforts in their external behaviors, were doubly convinced of their ways. And as a result, Jesus says, verse 15, they are made twice a son of hell as yourselves. Now, I know that I have met some members of religious cults that have borne an amazing resemblance to their teachers. I mean, I've been on college campuses when, uh, you know, I've met one person from this cult. And I'm like, okay, I dealt with him. And, you know, and then I go around and, and I meet another guy. And he, like, has the same personality, says the same thing, acts the same way as this other guy. I've had people come to my doorstep and talk with him and battle with them, right, about the truth of Christ. And, and they've left different locations, Right? come another people to my doorstep, and they talk exactly the same way. Their same personality, same inflections. They've learned well from their leaders. I've seen cults riding on their bicycles in their nice little outfits. They look exactly alike because they're being trained that way. And that's what was doing the, the Pharisees were doing. And from this verse, I think, ought to be clear that we ought not to follow after those propagating a false religion. Those who are going to hell are leading others to hell. In fact, perhaps you can say it. Those who are walking to hell are leading others who are running past them to get into hell. And I'm sure as the multitudes heard Jesus say these things about the scribes and the Pharisees, I'm sure that many of the people were awakened to the danger of of these people. Whoa. There's some danger here. We, we, we better keep away from these. And you need to feel the warning here. If people don't get the gospel right, don't follow them. Because if you do, you'll end up where they will end up. And again, this isn't child's play. This is eternal reality that's at stake here. Don't follow false leaders. So the question comes, how do you know if a leader is false or not? Let me give you just two tests. Really easy. right? Look at, it, look at their life. Look at their doctrine. Look at their life. Look at their doctrine. What are they teaching? Are they living it? Do they teach the truth? Do they live the truth? I give you those two tests because that's exactly what Paul said. That a true minister, a true pastor ought to seek. 1 Timothy 4.16 Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. And then listen to the words. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. See, it's the, it's the teaching and the life of spiritual leaders that has a saving influence upon the congregation. That's why it's important to look at the life and the teaching. It's a pastor's task to maintain a purity of life and purity of doctrine. So doing, people will be saved. But how are you going to discern whether a spiritual leader is teaching the truth? Well, you need to know the Bible for yourself. That's how. You see where they're teaching the Bible. See whether Christ is exalted and lifted high. Be a student of God's Word that you might be discerning. 
How are you going to discern whether a spiritual leader is living the truth? Well, get to know him. Beware of the spiritual leader that's aloof from his congregation. Beware of the spiritual leader whose house you're never at. Beware of the spiritual leader who's not open, welcome, and inviting. Because there could be something to hide. As a spiritual leader deviates either from teaching or from his life, those who followed him will be led to destruction along with him. And that was the case of the Pharisees. Their teaching was wrong, their lives were wrong, and they led many to hell. Well, I want to linger here just a little bit to say, to give you even another application from these verses. I just say this, that we as a church need to make sure that we lead people properly. It's not just the responsibility as a leader of a church. You have many opportunities to lead or influence people, perhaps pretty informally, perhaps formally, that you maybe even not realize for us, for it. You know, as a church, it's easy to find what we want to produce. We want to produce disciples of Christ. We want to produce those who are trusting solely in the work of Christ, those who have come to, to love the cross of Christ and are walking in the love of Christ. Isn't that what we're about? And that happens on all levels. You have a friend who doesn't know Christ. You spend some time talking with them. Right? You speak with them. And your desire is that they come to know Jesus. And, and come to know the wonders of His forgiving love and become His disciple as well. Happens at your home. Parents, you have a tremendous opportunity in leading your children in the ways of the Lord. And here it is. Don't lead them to be like you. When you mess up, confess it. Lead them to be like Jesus. Right? And, and there it is, right? When you're influencing other, the error of the Pharisee was that they made people like them. And we don't want to make people like them. We don't want our kids to be like us. We want our kids to be like Christ. So lead them to Jesus. Have them find in Him all that they need. Right? It happens in our interaction with one another in the church. In a conversation with others, home Bible studies, counseling on the phone, right? Encouraging one another, be in others' homes, right? Be leading others to Christ Jesus, not to ourselves. And I simply sound this warning because I would say there are many today who are doing more to promote converts to their own creeds and denominations and liturgies and Christian subcultures than they are producing converts to Christ. Right, they do this, they're demonstrating what's most important to them. What's most important? Is it the liturgy that's most important? Or is it faith in Christ that's most important? Is this particular pet doctrine the most important? It's most important that you love Christ. It's often that the church gets a focus and not Christ. And I know I'm guilty of this. I remember on one occasion meeting a man who's involved in a parachurch ministry down in DeKalb. We're starting to get involved in a, a church a bit. And I remember a conversation I had with him of course, being the discerning spiritual leader, right? And telling him about why his parachurch ministry was all bad and wrong and telling him why our church was so good. And, you know, I had to later call and confess to him. I said, you know what? I, I, I've, I've blown it. I'm elevating our church and what we do above the cause of Christ. And I confessed being overzealous for the church and forsaking the role of Christ. And yet that happens so much. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. He said, how much religion... He was living at, he's Bishop of Livermore in England during the 1800s in the, in the Church of England, highly liturgical church. And so he, he addresses the errors in the liturgical church. He says, How much religion among some members of the Church of England consists in nothing but churchmanship? 
They belong to the established church. They're baptized at her fonts, founts, married at her communion rails, buried in her churchyards, preached to on Sundays by her ministers. But the great doctrines laid down by her articles and liturgy have no place in their hearts and no influence on their lives. They neither think nor feel nor care nor, nor, nor know anything about them. And is the religion of these people real Christianity? He says nothing of the kind. It's not the Christianity of Peter, James, and John, and Paul. It is churchianity and no more. Addressing those high church liturgies. And then he turned to the dissenters. Some of you might know what the dissenters are. Some of you might not. The dissenters are those who resisted against the Church of England. They said, I can't submit myself to the king or queen or throne of England. I need to dissent from that. I need to get apart from that. I need to get away from that church authority. I'm going to do things my way. You might liken the dissenters to a modern-day fundamentalists. Listen to what he has to say about them. He says, how much religion among dissenters from the Church of England consists in nothing but dissent. They pride themselves on having nothing to do with the establishment. They rejoice in having no liturgy, no forms, no bishops. They glory in the exercise of their private judgment in the absence of everything like ceremonial in their public worship. But all this time they have neither grace, nor faith, nor repentance, nor holiness, nor spirituality of conduct or conversation. Their Christianity is as sapless and fruitless as a dead tree and as dry and marrowless as an old bone. Is this Christianity of these people real? He said it's nothing of the kind. And then I think he coined a term. It is dissensionity. And nothing more. Now what's true of England in the 1800s can easily be true of us today. I mean, how many churches there are where people are going through the motions, it's cold and it's empty. Right? They're producing converts after their liturgy, but their liturgy is empty, and so they're producing nothing. And how many churches have everything nicely bundled? They know what they believe. They know the proper way to behave. They know everything that's wrong with everybody else. And a dynamic can often occur that's more about the church, and it's more about their creeds than it is about Christ. See, and what they're doing is they're just making converts of themselves. Rather make converts of Jesus, just like the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are making converts of themselves, and that's where their error went wrong. The danger is always there. I mean, how easy is it for people to come into a Christian fellowship, right, and begin to start looking around? I start saying, okay, how do they talk? Ooh, i got to learn this new language. i got to learn Christianese. Praise the Lord, brother. Hallelujah. Right? They begin to learn this language, and, and they begin to learn, right, when to wear dresses and when not to wear dresses, Right? And they begin to learn when to wear ties and when not to wear ties. And they begin to know what to talk about is okay and what to talk about is not okay. And they start learning all these unwritten, maybe sometimes written rules and regulations. And you know what they're learning? They're learning churchianity rather than Christianity. The churches are making disciples of themselves and rather than disciples of Christ. How often do churches make, take a great amount of attention upon their marketing techniques? Then they teach their disciples how to get a crowd so they can go and do likewise. How many churches place a great amount of attention on how they, they do ministry, right? Let's get our methods down. And then you're just teaching people about methods. How many churches can pay a great amount of attention to their particular doctrines and try to ingrain them into everybody, right? Place a great amount of attention on their music or their dress, or their traditions, and the new convert then becomes ingrained in these traditions and these ways of doing church. And these converts essentially then become 
cultural disciples. Disciple in the church rather than Christ. And I think this is exactly the same thing that disciples were in error of. Rather than taking them back to the Word of God, rather than taking them back to the heart of Scripture, they were showing them how they do it and says, you do it like I do it. You know, and as much as we might think we have things right at Rock Valley Bible Church, I don't think we have everything right. And there's certainly things that we can do better. I just say this. We don't want to produce Rock Valley Bible Church clonies. Right? We don't want that. We don't want everybody coming in the door. You know, we go out from there. Oh, you go to Rock Valley Bible Church, right? Because you talk like this and like this. God has given different people in the congregation different giftedness. We want to create Christ followers. We don't want to produce disciples ourselves. We want to produce disciples of Jesus. I finish with just three verses. Three verses. I'll just read them for you. You see the thrust of that. And I want you to show of in our disciple-making process, whether it's parents with children, whether it's leaders of the congregation, whether it's peer-to-peer influencing one another, I just say, let's focus each other upon the glories of Christ and trusting in Him alone. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If I'm imitating something that's not Christ-like, don't imitate that, but imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ, what he's saying. That's what we want to do. To the extent that you see the grace of Christ work in us, boy, imitate that, absolutely. But we're going outside of it, or creating cultures. Let's abandon it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. That's all they are. In Corinth, people following after Paul. People following after Apollos. I'm following after this guy. I'm following after this guy, even as well good as they are. Right? I follow after John Piper. I follow after John MacArthur. I follow after, you know what? It's not about that. Who are they? They are servants through whom we have believed, directing us to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Right? It's not about Rock Valley Bible Church. It's not about creating clonies like us. It's about creating Christ followers. The Pharisees were in error because they were making disciples just like themselves, and we can fall into the same errors. Right? How to avoid condemnation? Let's get the gospel right. Be others focused, serving others, not ourselves with our religiosity. Let's don't follow false leaders, nor let's not be like them and make disciples of ourselves. Let's make disciples of Christ. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, these are hard words. And I've tried this morning to be eminently serious because these are serious matters, I I pray that our hearts would be searched. That we would look to our own selves and realize when it is that we have missed. And I know that I have missed over the years on several occasions. Confessed some of that even here this morning. Lord, I would pray that You would teach us of the Gospel to glory in it, to rejoice in it, to know it. You would teach us, God, not to be in church for our own aggrandizement and benefit, but to be in it for the help of others, to serve others. 
I pray that you would teach us and guide us in how it is that we can make disciples of Christ, disciples of you, Lord Jesus, and not of ourselves. God, when false leaders come, we see them and they are making disciples of themselves. May we hate it and may we not follow them. God, these warnings to the Pharisees and scribes were long ago to a peculiar people and yet they have application to us. I pray that you would push the application deep into our hearts, that we would respond rightly and glory in the cross of Christ and place no confidence in the flesh.